Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is a psychiatrist and psychopharmacologist named Dr. Julie Holland. And she's researched throughout her career drug dangers, drug use, MDMA, cannabis, and psychedelics, but not just dangers, some of the good stuff as well. You've also seen her on the Today Show, Good Morning America, CNN, Dr. Oz, Vice, NPR, and a long list of other places where world-class experts would show up, including Bulletproof Radio. She's got a new book called Good Chemistry, The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics, and she looks at the science of connection, why we need it, how we've lost it, and how we, we might even find it again. I thought she'd be particularly appropriate for you today because there's a pretty good chance that if your face is wrapped in cloth, it might be harder to connect with other people. And if you're you know, locked at home for months on end without seeing more than a couple people, it might be hard for you to find connection. So let's bring in an expert about connection and what it does for us, how to get more of it, and how to do it all safely uh, with or without drugs. <laughs> Julie, how was that? How was that yeah. introduction? Let's talk about that. I think that sounds like a fine introduction. It's been a long time since you were on the show. You were on episode 231. We talked about hacking orgasms, medical ecstasy, antidepressants, and how to get off of them, and why women need testosterone. So it's it's been 600 episodes thereabouts. Mm, so I know wow. you've done a lot of work since then, uh, and so have I. So it's time for us to get uh, caught up on all kinds of fun stuff, uh, including MDMA, because it's it's changed a lot. And maybe we could get started there, because you know the stereotypical, what you see in a movie, oh, I took my MDMA, and now anyone wearing fur, I just have to touch them. <laughs> Since then, it's been more, you know, MAPS is doing work. We've had all these these studies come out that say this actually works for PTSD and for people who are really having problems. Where are you on the subject of MDMA now? <clears throat> well, I am now where I've always been uh, since <laughs> 1985, which is that boy, this would be a very useful tool for psychiatry. And that was my original thought back when I was, uh, I was a sophomore at Penn. I was, I was a pre-med and I was studying like psychopharm uh, when I first heard about MDMA. And the way I heard about it was that some therapists and psychiatrists were saying, uh, hey, we were using this in our practice and we were getting good results with it. And now you're making it illegal. So uh, I got in touch with these therapists and psychiatrists and and heard a little bit more about how these MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions were really effective um, and efficient. You know, good therapy takes years. And yeah. it's like peeling an onion and then people get... It's like a peeling an onion if the onion were defensive and ran away every once in a while, right? It's not even as simple as peeling an onion because it, as you start getting closer... That's the best description of... Yeah. Best description of psychiatry I've ever heard of, by the way. I, I if, think you just like broke right. the internet with that one. If the onion stopped answering your calls for six months every once in a while because <laughs> you got too close to something. So there's there is there's a lot of defensiveness and fear built into good psychotherapy because it is sort of like surgery where you're trying to dig down and get to these malignant things that are causing problems that need to be removed and examined. Um, but it's like surgery without anesthesia, right, to dig down to these malignancies. So uh, I think of MDMA as sort of uh, uh, it's like adding adding the anesthesia or adding the secret sauce that allows the therapy to go deeper um, and to be more efficient and more effective and also more comfortable. You know, uh, it's it's painful digging up trauma and you can be scared and you can be re-traumatized re and you can cry. So uh, for to take a chemical that sort of dampens the amygdala response so you're not as fearful and uh, increases serotonin, so you're not as anxious, and very importantly, increases oxytocin, so you feel more trusting and connected and more bonded with the person who's wow. doing the therapy. So that's an important piece of the puzzle, right? It enhances the therapeutic alliance, that, that sense that the therapist and client are working together towards something. So that combination, and then also, of course, MDMA, uh, methylene dioxy, methamphetamine, right? It's sort of a cousin to methamphetamine or amphetamine. So you've got that stimulant base. People are awake, alert. They want to talk. They want to connect. They want to dig. And they've got really good recall, not just for the trauma, which is really important, but for the session itself, right? I mean, sometimes 
you may think you've got these great insights. I think nitrous oxide is a great example. Um, for my experiences with nitrous is I think I've discovered this amazing thing and then I come out and the sand kind of goes through my fingers and I'm like, I don't know what I had. But with MDMA, you really remember the session. You remember the processing of the trauma and you're also gonna remember the trauma a bit differently because while you process the trauma, you are feeling at ease and comfortable and courageous. So it's a chance uh, to sort of reformulate and reintegrate the trauma and also just uh, like have a measure of acceptance and, and equanimity. Like, yes, this terrible thing happened to me, but it wasn't my fault. I didn't cause it, but I'm not going to reject it anymore. I'm going to integrate it um, into the full picture of who I am. So uh, that's a very long answer of saying that I have uh, I have unwavered in my uh, belief that MDMA will be um, really a disruptive technology to the field of psychiatry. Uh, and potentially even fields outside of psychiatry, because as you and I know, the mind and the body, they're very much connected. Uh, we often sort of work through traumas with physical symptoms. So uh, yes, it will help post-traumatic stress disorder, but it also, I think anytime you've got very rigid thinking, right, which you would have yeah. say, like, let's say anorexia, I think is a good example. Oh, I thought you were somebody, politics, but okay, well, yeah. we, we should talk about politics because I, <laughs> I agree no. <laughs> that that is someplace where there's rigid thinking, but I'm going to stick with like real pathology, like obsessive okay. compulsive disorder, yeah. anorexia. I used to have OCD by the way. So I, I get it. So this, okay. you know, that you've got a certain way of thinking and a certain way of doing things and it's not going to change very much. So anorexia, you know, you're convinced you're fat, even though everyone else is telling you you're too thin or um, addiction, you know, you keep going for a certain substance because you want a certain feeling. And even though you're really not getting what you want, you keep going there over and over. So there's this rigidity of thought. And so what we need in psychiatry is something that sort of creates a, a more fluid sense of self that isn't so rigid, that maybe opens things up. And that's where I think not only MDMA, but now you should talk about psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, um, psychedelics, where you really have sort of a, an enhanced flexibility, a different way of thinking about things, you have less cognitive rigidity, you're able to sort of like, let's shake it up, let's look at it from a different angle, um, and or from just a bigger perspective, you know, which sometimes makes a big difference. But in terms of politics and cognitive rigidity there, I would say that if you read chapter five of Good Chemistry, uh, you will understand more about where oxytocin fits in to this sort of social cohesion that happens around ideas. Um, and also that's Tell where me I more talk about, about that. So, well, there's, so there's a couple of how things. does oxytocin tie into politics? So and that's an excellent question, Dave. Um, it, I, you know, I call it the sort of like seamy underbelly of oxytocin or the sort of the dirty underside of it is that, you know, as much as we think of oxytocin as being sort of like this this cuddle hormone and it makes us feel connected and warm and fuzzy and we get it from hugging and we get it from cuddling and we get it from orgasm and from nursing a baby and the base the baby gets it from nursing with the mother like so it's all this great kind of warm cuddly you know rainbows and unicorns connection but um the other side of this is that it also really enhances social cohesion group mind and um, this idea of, uh, are you in my tribe or are you in the other tribe? And us, us and them sort of thinking. Oxytocin can make us sort of more stringently acting toward the people that we consider to be them and not us. And also feel more uh, cohesion and power within the group. Okay. See, I don't, I personally don't think tribalism is such a bad word. Um, you know, I mean, it feels good to be in a tribe. I mean, it there's feels a biohacker good to be in a tribe. tribe. You know, I have uh, back when I was in medical school and MDMA was sort of in, in the clubs and in the dance scene, you know, we would go to raves, right? And a lot of people would be taking MDMA or what they thought was MDMA. If they were lucky, it was MDMA at right. a rave. And there would be this sort of group mind, you know, like you're on the dance floor and everybody's dancing the same song and everybody's like feeling good and looking around, smiling at each other. And there's eye contact. Maybe you're all sweaty and you're touching like that is a really heady experience. And mm -hmm. there is a lot of oxytocin going on, even without the MDMA, I would say, that group dancing, group cohesion, it's going to facilitate the flow. You know, 
one important thing to talk about with hormones, and I imagine you've heard this from other uh, interviewers, is that, you know, I think we have this idea that if you take a hormone, you act a certain way. You know, if I if I shoot you up with testosterone, you're going to be horny. And that that may be true. But more importantly, it's um, if I see someone who is attractive and arouses me, then I will have an increase of testosterone. So it can come from right. the stimulus and that you make it yourself. So oxytocin really works more that way. Um, the studies where they give oxytocin and show that it affects behavior, it does a bit, but not nearly as much as something that um, happens uh, naturally or endogenously, like orgasm or childbirth or nursing. I mean, these are very intense states and they're high oxytocin states, but they are they're sort of in response to a stimulus, like in response to a baby. Okay. I, I did a, a little, we'll call it an experiment in crowd control at one of the biohacking conferences uh, that I run. This must have been three or four years ago. I had Paul Zak, you know, Dr. Love, mm -hmm. the oxytocin guy. Right. And, and he had a 90-second video um, that in, induces oxytocin in about 90% of people who see it. And it's, you know, like a real tearjerker kind of video. So I played it for everyone at the start of the conference to raise group oxytocin. And because I'm high integrity, I told everyone what I was doing, but it didn't matter because the right. oxytocin would still go up. Right. And it was a really amazing conference because we opened it up with this huge amount of trust and all that stuff. And here's my question for you, Julie. If we'd given them MDMA instead of oxytocin via video, what would the difference have been? Well, the thing about MDMA is it's not just oxytocin, right? right. You're also getting increased dopamine, increased serotonin. So uh, it's, it's a little bit more than just oxytocin, really. So I mean, nicotine, oxytocin coffee and <laughs> a little 5-HTP? I mean, well, could we come close? Here's here's what I say. I mean, the <laughs> thing that I say a lot about MDMA is that, you know, I feel like you couldn't design a better molecule to assist in the process of psychotherapy. So yeah, it's okay. possible that if you took to, you know, if you took a little uh, oxytocin and, you know, 5-HTP and nicotine and this and that, maybe you would approximate something. But, you, you know, anybody who had had it's MDMA would be like, not quite it. <laughs> like try okay, again. I have never had MDMA. Uh, surprisingly, uh, to some listeners, I mean, I go to Burning Man a lot and all that kind of stuff. Um, the reason is that I'm really concerned about uh, serotonin receptor sensitivity. I think we might have even talked about this a little bit on our last interview. Um, what are the risks of of trying this? So, uh, the big caveat is that because this is an illegal drug, you don't know what you're buying, you don't know what you're taking. And so that's really the biggest harm, right? There's a risk of drug substitution. So one of the things that makes it less risky, um, besides the fact that it would, if it were legal, it would be less risky, yeah, right? No but if you know that you have MDMA, that's already a big hurdle in terms of uh, decreasing risk. And then the other big risks are overheating, uh, yeah. you know, getting too hot, dancing too much, getting heat stroke. And then the other risk that people don't always talk about is overhydrating. That MDMA does put you in a little bit of a of a water retention sort of a state, especially yeah. if you're a premenstrual woman. So there's a risk of overhydrating. But in the context of a, the the medical research that's going on now, you know you've got either 80 or 120 milligrams. It's it's like 99.7 percent pure, um, and you're not dancing around. You're not overhydrating. So a lot of those risks really are minimized. Um, in the research setting. And this is why these are FDA sanctioned studies that are, you know, this is a multi-center trial where they're giving MDMA to people with post-traumatic stress disorder um, in small centers of research all around America. So um, you're asking about how to decrease risk. And I'm sort of telling you that the medical model that we're using is really low risk, but uh, very hard to decrease risk in, in a recreational setting. And so you don't always know what you're getting. And then, and like any sort of psychotropic or psychedelic, right, which means mind mm -hmm. manifesting. Um, I mean, I have a sort of big umbrella for psychedelic. I, I, it's, to me, it's not just, you know, mushrooms and, and acid. I would also include cannabis and MDMA under that because they are mind manifesting. They are mind revealing. They are mind expanding. Um, what about modafinil? I prescribe modafinil for my patients. You know, I have a private practice in psychopharmacology yeah. and I, uh, if somebody wants to try modafinil, then I'm like, sure, you could try modafinil and I give them a prescription and I have to argue with their insurance company, but I can usually get it approved. I just have to say like, yeah, they have, 
you know, shift sleep worker apnea, sleep disorder, shift work disorder. Yeah. Like, but you know, it's, it's really that people would like, uh, an option besides Adderall and Ritalin and, you yeah. know, people are looking to focus. I think modafinil helps some people focus uh, every once in a while. I get somebody who likes it more than an, a regular stimulant, but not that often. It, is it mind expanding in, in the same way you're talking about? I, I'd kind of, kind of, I'd put it on the same list because it, it makes, at least for me, it makes me more able to do more. Everything is effortless and including mindfulness, but you could right. just take that and play ping pong with it, or you could be mindful. But when you're being mindful, you got more mind to be mindful with. Yeah. I mean, to me, like when you're really talking about something that's mind expanding, uh, it's almost like uh, there needs to be a, a quieting or a contraction mm of the, of the ego, right. And the small self and this, and the self that wants to achieve and do, um, that when you're really expanding, you get out of this sort of yang type behavior, um, mm -hmm. and into something more receptive and sort of yin where you don't have boundaries. Um, and the other thing I would mention, uh, as long as we're talking about ADD meds and stimulants and modafinils, I would also make a plug for CBD, which mm. I think um, it doesn't have the sort of edginess and the, and the pushiness of, of the stimulants, but it does lend sort of a calm focus. So what I recommend for my patients is that they have whole plant strains that are high in CBD, but do have THC in them. And I do think that, uh, it can, I used, I use CBD quite a bit, for instance, when I was writing booty bitches, it really helped me maybe the way that modafinil sort of helps you like get her done, you know? Well, for, for me, it's usually it's usually bulletproof coffee and nicotine. And I did a little modafinil, not for my most recent, the book on fasting that's coming out, mm -hmm. um, but the one before that, because I was writing about modafinil. I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't taken this in a couple of years. I, I kind of forgot how good it was. So I, I probably yeah. did five of them or something. Um, but for you, it's it's actually CBD with THC makes you a better writer. Well, it look, it got me to sit down and get my work done. Okay, um, <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> To just sort of quiet, you know, I mean, you know, writing, first of all, you have to be alone. It has to be pretty quiet. You have to be yes. in a particular place. And I do, you know, I mean, I can edit in a Chuck E. Cheese, you know, anywhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how much noise there is. Uh, although now a Chuck E. Cheese would be like, you know. It's like a Zen, a zen temple, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> like, like um, I'm trying to think of those things that go by in the wind, the tumbleweeds, you know. Oh, it's just go. like very quiet. But um, my point is I... I I can focus if I have something on the page to edit or to work with, I can focus in any situation, but for writing and having that blank page I need to be in a particular place. And for me, okay. I found CBD helpful and my patients, uh, they'll use CBD for anxiety or to help them focus. So I do, I recommend it to quite a few of my patients. Wow. Okay. How long does it take you with CBD or any other helpers you use to get into writing mode? I'm asking as another professional writer. To get writer. into writing mode. Yeah. So if you're um, going to sit down, there's a blank page. I don't know. It takes me about 45 minutes to get into writing mode. Um, and I, I have my little, I'll do bulletproof coffee at night. I'll do decaf because I know the MCTs do something for me. I'll take a little hit of nicotine. I'll take, you know, mitochondrial enhancers and things like that. Yeah, uh, and then all of a sudden I'm like, all right, and it's about eleven o'clock at night when everyone's quiet, and then I just <laughs> zoom in and, and I, I wake so up different. at five in the morning and I've written like a whole paragraph, a whole uh, chapter. But what's how what's your what's your window to get into it, and what else do you take? Because I want to know. <laughs> well, um, I do. So I really like cannabis for okay. getting ideas. Um, yeah putting together all the pieces, you know, if I, if I have cannabis in my system, I might take some notes or jot down a couple of sentences or things that I want to work on later, but I, it's not like I can really write in that place. Um, but I will definitely use cannabis to help sort of inspire me. Um, I used to, I was a cigarette smoker for years, so I don't, I am not interested in using nicotine, but I totally understand how that helps you focus. There's no question. Smoking's horrible. I'm just talking about microdosing oral nicotine, which is anti-Alzheimer's and good for your mitochondria. Yeah, and also doses. probably pretty good for focusing and getting work Oh, it's crazy. Out. But the other thing is I am not a nighttime worker at all. I am very much a, a daytime writer. And the thing that helps me, uh, my husband built a cabin out in the woods and there's no Wi-Fi. So if oh, I bring wow. my phone, I have Wi-Fi. But if I leave my phone at home and go out with a... Uh, 
pen and paper. Can you imagine that some, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I will just like, you know, I need solitude. That's my biggest problem. I'm, I'm a psychiatrist, so I've got tons of patients who need things from me. I am a, a wife and mother, so I have a certain amount of people who need things from me and then there's always you know food shopping and laundry and cooking and it does it never really ends that my biggest thing is just carving out the space to get some work done and i'm not willing to do it at night i love sleeping <laughs> it's really weird i'm happy we're talking i didn't think we we're going to talk about this and i hope it's helpful for a lot of people listening i've been a night owl my average bedtime was 2 a.m for my entire life and yeah. over the last couple of years i've been doing more and more research on sleep and also more biohacking. And I think I actually fixed stuff in my brain that has not been working very well since I was very, very young. But I can go to bed at a normal time, like 10, 10.30, which was the most abhorrent thing for my whole life. But to write, I still stay up till four in the morning, but I manipulate my, you know, my colors and all that kind of stuff with glasses and everything else, where I can do that for three weeks. And it takes me one day to go back to going to bed at 10. And I'm highly functional the whole time. And it's it's kind of a miracle because for me, just like you, constant demands on time. When you're a CEO of multiple companies and and visible on social media and all, it's it's a lot. Um, and then kids, wife, all of a sudden I'm like, I finally got five hours where no one will talk to me. And right. it's like so much peace. Uh, and then I want peace and focus and I want to just get it all out. Um, so I'm going to have to try some some CBD with a little bit of THC. I'm, I've not been a big fan, but I will, I will give it a try and it's legal here in Canada. So that's um, not an issue for me. The other things I would never do because obviously they're, they're not legal. Right. Well, look, I, you know, some, I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in good chemistry a little bit, and I do in my private practice too, is that like everybody has their own sort of proprietary blend of chemistry yeah. and what works for them and what feels good to them. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense, you know, to try to convince somebody to take this other thing if they're like, yeah, but this works. So, you know, totally. I will often, I and mean, that's a harm reduction is all about sort of taking somebody where they are and, and accepting like, okay, I get this works for you and I'm going to, you know, work with you, but let's, let's see if we can, you know, shift it ever so slightly. <laughs> It, it's always also about you You play with it and you realize, wait, I, I've never taken, you know, paracetam and oh my God, I'm better at what I do with this and it's good for my brain. Uh, so maybe I'm going to add that. So for me, it, it's about, you know, continuous process improvement to just find out how can I be in the state I want, right. whether it's from meditation or electricity or whatever else. And so I'm asking these questions because I believe that many of the people listening to this are also asking themselves that question, like, how can I how can I do more of what's important to me? And what's important is very different for different people listening, but it's like, what are the tools so that I can get there faster or I can do it better? Because I think that's our core wiring. Yeah. And, and that brings me back to the, our MDMA question at the beginning. Um, what about MDA without the meth molecule on it? So MDA lasts longer than MDMA and it's a bit more psychedelic. Um, it sort of came before MDMA and there, yeah. there are people who like it better. Um, a lot of people think that it does sort of open the heart in the same way that MDMA seems to open the heart, but there's a little bit more of a psychedelic, uh, feel to it. And it's a little bit more intense and it lasts longer. Okay. So no, no therapeutic benefits there compared to MDMA. Well, you know, one of the, when you're doing research, um, there's, there's a lot of practical issues to consider, right? Like one of the reasons why there isn't a ton of LSD research going on is that for some people, LSD is going to last 12 hours, 14 hours. Yeah. That's a really long day when you're a therapist, right? Uh, mushrooms mm. are great because they're really right around like four to six hours. And MDMA is pretty much around four to six hours, but we give, we give the research subjects eight hours to really completely have an experience and collect themselves. But if you were using MDA, it would make the day maybe three or four hours longer and eight hours is already, yeah, it's already a pretty long day, I think for people. So that's one of the reasons, but also, you know, MDMA, it's a pretty subtle shift, you know, for people who haven't taken a lot of drugs or taken psychedelics, um, maybe they're not even pot smokers or anything, but, but MDMA is a pretty subtle, it's, it's not so disorienting. You know, if you had to pick up the phone and talk to your mother or whatever, you could, uh, if, uh, you know, it's not, you're not so incapacitated 
the way that you okay. that the way that you might be, you know, with uh, psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca. So it's it's a it's a good sort of a manipulatable state. Um, and the other, you know, uh, one interesting issue for the sort of sciencey nerds in in your audience that I, that I talk about in Good Chemistry, um, there's a, a researcher named Gould Dolan um, who had a paper in Nature that was really fascinating, where she she sort of uh, theorizes that one of the things MDMA does is it is it puts the brain in this very sort of plastic state, this neuroplastic state that is similar to how neuroplastic our brains were when we were adolescents. Right. So wow. one of the things that happens in adolescence is that it's a time of uh, sort of integrating a lot of social cues and figuring out what your place is socially. And as an adolescent, we care a lot about social cues. Right. You care whether your friends think you're cool or think you're a jerk or rolling their eyes or smirking at you. Um, totally. And by the way, this, you know, everybody wearing masks makes you a little uncomfortable because you don't quite know exactly you know, whether somebody's smiling or yawning or grimacing under that mask. So you can get a little anxious. So it's almost as if you were a teenager again and you really care what people think about you. But in this highly plastic state, um, it, it's a chance to sort of re-impress and rework some of that circuitry. So um, I'm very interested in neuroplasticity. I imagine your listeners are too. Um, it, it's one of the two big core things. Have more energy and be more neuroplastic equals yeah. younger brain, right? Yeah. Okay. So a lot of these psychedelics really do enhance neuroplasticity by raising BDNF and yeah, uh, so, nerve so growth MDMA, factor and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and we're measuring BDNF more in a lot of research moving forward because everybody is. I mean, I would just like to say that like ten years ago, I was at a conference on a stage and I said to the entire crowd, like BDNF is important. You need to be measuring it. I think neuroplasticity is important. Um, I still really believe believe this. Um, and so, and ketamine, ketamine absolutely enhances neuroplasticity and, and ayahuasca DMT does also, and, and the cannabinoids do as well. CBD and THC, um, do enhance neuroplasticity. So, and so does exercise and so does fasting and so does, uh, antidepressants and lot, and also stressful events and lots of things. And what it really comes down to is like, where, where is our brain open to learning? Where do we learn things? How do we learn things? And one thing that I think is really important to, and I sort of look at the world as like, um, are you in sympathetic or are you in parasympathetic? And yeah. in the very beginning of Good Chemistry, I explain the difference. I'm sure your listeners know all about fight or flight and sympathetic nervous system. We all do. We've all heard about it a million times. But the thing that we really haven't heard enough about and that I am sort of preaching is the parasympathetic nervous system. It's the exact opposite of fight or flight, right? It's not all about attacking and running away, right? Sometimes survival is about staying and connecting and collaborating, um, getting input from people, making good decisions, integrating a lot of information. You need to be open, right? To really learn and integrate and grow and change. You cannot be closed down in fight or flight with a very clear vector, you know, that you're either attacking or running away. You really need to be open and parasympathetic. And you know that that's the place it's really the only time the body repairs itself is in parasympathetic, right? Yeah. It's called rest, digest, and repair. Fight or flight is not about the body fixing itself. It's about running on fumes. The parasympathetic is where the body can repair itself, and it's also where we can repair our relationships. It's where we can sort of tend and befriend and mend the connections. It's where we can be social. It's also the only place we can really sleep and digest our food. And, you know, so we're looking at like in fight or flight, you're talking about insomnia and ulcers and obesity. You know, the, the metabolism is deranged. The the immune system is deranged. But in the parasympathetic rest, digest, repair, the immune function is better. Your metabolism is better. Your neuroplasticity is better. Your social skills are better. Um, it's where we want to be where you want to be. So I talk to my patients a lot about how do we get in parasympathetic? How do we get you out of fight or flight? Because look at you, you know, you're leaning forward, <laughs> right. your hands are clenched, you're angry. Um, and we're just talking about something that happened two days ago. Imagine how you felt two days ago, you know, so uh, it's about breathing through your nose <clears throat> and um, calming yourself. And oxytocin is sort of the, the juice that runs parasympathetic as much as cortisol and adrenaline sort of enable the sympathetic state. 
oxytocin enables the parasympathetic state. Well, I promised listeners at the beginning of the show that we were going to talk about connection and then we started talking about drugs because you're a really good expert and you're talking about the psychology of them, not the recreational use, which is an appropriate uh, way to use them. Uh, so I tend to, to go there with you. When it comes to connection, I would like to know what you're seeing in the last six months when there's been pandemic and global fear and all that sort of stuff. What has that done to our sense of connection and what has the impact on people been from that? What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Well, there's a few layers, right? I mean, the, the most obvious thing is that we're all more isolated. You know, we're all uh, staying away from other people. We're physically distancing. We're socially distancing. <clears throat> we're we're wearing, wearing masks. Um, you know, back in March and April, I was talking to some of my patients and they, uh, one of them said, I've had no human contact for eight weeks. No one has held me. No one has, you know, shook my hand or put their arm on my arm for eight weeks. And I'm thinking, we're not built for that. You know, no. we're really not built to be isolated. We're social primates. We're built for connection. Um, <clears throat> it's how we survive. And, you know, if you think about sort of back in the cave person days, if if the group didn't like you, you were screwed. You know, yeah. they wouldn't share their food with you. They wouldn't help you build shelter. You wouldn't, uh, you know, create progeny. You were going to get picked off of the herd. You were going to die. So on some sort of deep level, when we feel uh, that we are not in the group or in the crowd, there is a lot of physical unrest. We're basically in fight or flight when we don't feel like we belong or that we're connected. And so, yes, there's a fear of contagion, but the isolation itself is another stressor. I think most of us intuitively understand that, that this isolation is another stressor on top of the fear of contagion. The only thing that mitigates it a little bit is that we're all going through it together right? We're all being traumatized. We're all sort of subject to the same winds of everything. Maybe in some countries, it's a little more chaotic than in other countries, but at least there is this sense of, <clears throat> hey, it's not just happening to me. You know, I'm not just getting screwed here. Everybody is. And so a misery does love company. So um, I do remind my patients who are having a hard time that they're not alone. You know, this is really hard for everybody. It doesn't necessarily make you feel any better just to know that other people are feeling terrible like you are. Um, but it, maybe you'll feel a little less lonely that you're not the only person who feels isolated and is going through this. But it ha it's been really hard on my patients and they're they're soothing themselves however they can, right? They eat more, they're biting their nails, they're gaining weight. I definitely have a lot of people who are joking about the COVID-19 is how much weight they've gained. Um, they're Or maybe, yeah, or maybe they're not as much fun. They're maybe drinking more. You know, the quarantinis have sort of taken on a life of their own or people are drinking more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the longer it goes on, I definitely have some people who really are sort of running on empty, running on fumes, and really they need social contact. And the Zoom calls are not really working. 
No, um, and I and that. I explained to my patients, you know, if you're on a call with like seven or eight or 10 faces, your brain is going to be scanning those faces nonstop for social cues to make sure you're safe. That's just the way our brains are. And if somebody has a fuzzy connection or, you know, their faces stop for a minute because they're, you know, herky jerky, um, we're, our brains are built for, I would say, analog signals of social cues. And if everybody's got an Ethernet connection, great. But uh, tiny little boxes, can't really see their faces, herky-jerky, your brain is just scanning, scanning the whole time. And it's it takes up a certain amount of bandwidth. It's like an app that's running in the background that's like sucking your battery. So my patients were on multiple Skype calls all day long, and they don't understand why they feel so fried at the end of the day. And I'm like, oh, I understand. I will tell you exactly why. Um, also, you have to get outside. Uh, you know, you have to leave your house. You have to walk around, like put on a mask and get out there or put, you know, put on a scuba tank, whatever you need to do, but you can't be a hermit, you know, six or seven months. I mean, I really have some people, I had to like, uh, like yell at a patient of mine the other day. I'm like, put your phone down and walk outside. Like just leave the screens behind. You know, we're so, so attached to the, our screens. I'm me as much as I can't like pee without looking at Twitter. I mean, it's just stupid how i um, taking my phone with me wherever I go. When I leave the house, I'm checking to make sure I have my phone. Um, you know, I wrote about this in, in Good Chemistry. And this, by the way, was written before the pandemic, I should say. So all, yeah. all this advice to like uh, eye contact and inhale each other's pheromones and hug and skin to skin and orgasm. And these things are good for you. But right now you can't necessarily do these things. Um, and it's terrible. And then you know, the, the people who are alone are miserable, but the people who are stuck with their families, it's also a bit claustrophobic and it's a different kind of misery. It feels to me like having a, a sizable bubble is way worth whatever negligible risk that increases uh, because then you can get a hug from a friend and, and right. all the other things like that. Uh, but it's not something that you hear talked about that much, even from, you know, government authorities and all that, you know, social distancing, not physical distancing, but social distancing, which is increasing aloneness. And, and it seems like that would actually make you sick. Like if you're stressed all the time because you're lonely, your immunity goes down. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You're more likely to feel sick when you're stressed. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know families that are sort of bubbling up and, and I think it works out really well. If you've got two or three families who are agreeing that they're, that's it, it's just going to be us. And sometimes they get a, you know, a teacher to come in or a camp counselor or whatever, something for the kids. I think people are creating all sorts of uh, new sort of paradigms for how to get through this. Um, but yeah, if you can, you know, I'm a musician, my husband's a musician, um, we have friends who are musicians. We've been getting together once a week um, outside distancing to play music together. And we all like we're showing up every week on time because we need it and we want it. And um, it is, you know, it is good to have this sort of physical proximity and social support um, without without any kind of social support, especially if you're a kid, you really, you don't thrive. You don't really prosper. And is there a particular age where it's worse for kids? Well, you know, the, the Harlow studies with the, with the monkeys, uh, and you know, that the, the monkeys would get their milk from wherever they needed, but then they would go cling to the to the wire coated monkey that had cloth on it. So um, babies in particular absolutely need um, to feel attended to and cared for. I think a lot of what, when people have anxiety now, a lot of times it's because when they were a baby, they did not get held and attended to and cared for in a way that made them feel safe. And you know, I, I worked at Bellevue for a long time. I, I, I ran the mm -hmm. psychiatric ER at Bellevue on the weekends. And almost every patient I saw there who was um, depressed and suicidal and addicted and homeless, like all of these people, they all had a history of childhood neglect or childhood sexual abuse or both. You know, and, and I would think often to myself, like what this person really needs is a childhood transplant. You know, we're not going to be able to fix all these things because we, you know, because they started with such like a bad foundation. It's like, you know, it's like rearranging 
you know, deck chairs on the Titanic. Like, uh, yeah, it's and so that's what I really like about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is that it, it gives people a chance to really process and rework some of that very early trauma and maybe create a little bit of a different foundation because, you know, obviously we can't okay. do a childhood transplant. But childhood well, trauma is is fueling a lot of the pathology that we see today. Do you think that with the help of psychedelics and the various types of family therapies, you can re-envision your childhood and all things like that? Can't you get at least most of a childhood transplant with the right stack of pharmaceuticals and therapies? You can get a few things. I think one thing that you could get is some insight into what's going on, Yeah. right? Which can already be really helpful that you can, you know, one of the examples I give is like, if you're, if you're playing a video game and you're sort of caught in this circle and you're going in circles, but you don't really know that until you get the macro, you get the whole lay of the land. And then you're like, shit, there's this whole playing field, but I've been over in this corner. Duh. You know? So I think that like psychedelics can, can pull out and give you the macro. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I've just been going in circles. If I just go over here, there's all this space. Um, so I think that it can give you insight that you can, you know, for some people, it's the first time they realize that they were sexually abused or physically abused. So yeah, um, that is incredibly helpful just to be like, oh, wow, you know, I've, I've been spending 30 years trying not to think about this terrible thing that happened. Now I'm going to actually uh, accept that this thing happened and explore it. And now, oh my God, now I have so much more energy because I'm not doing this all day psychically every day. Yeah. You know, or that was, I was using alcohol to do this or I was, I was taking pills to do this. And so now I'm just going to be like, Oh, let's just let this thing out and try to work with it. And I've freed up a lot of energy, but you, you, you deal with people, I think sometimes in the neurofeedback clinics who are like hyper, um, uh, what's the word like hyper competent, like, you know, they're really good at their job. Like they're maybe they're CEOs or this and that, like they've, they're still productive, right? They're producing. And again, I want to, I want to use this word yang, you know, that, that sometimes they're, it's almost addictive in and of itself that you're, that yeah. you're pursuing, uh, that there's ambition and there's goal directed behavior. And, you know, if I make manager, if I make this and then I'll be vice president and then I can, you know, and there's, this sort of drive, it's very, it's very unsettled. Can you define yin and yang for listeners? I, sure. I mean, certainly I know what you're talking about, but I think some people here may not be familiar with those two yeah. halves. Just like educate well, us all. I, first of all, it's nicer. I think it's nice to say yin or yang instead of, you know, masculine or feminine, yeah. because there are, there are women who are very yang. I mean, I'm, I'm very yang, you know, I've, yeah, like, you are. I've written three books. I've edited two books and, you know, I like ran the psyche R with a, with a whip. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I was not like a, a pink frilly dress kind of girl. So, but I think it's, I think it helps to think in terms of, so yin is sort of would be the more feminine energy and yang would be the more masculine energy, except it's not pushing really versus about, receiving. It's so right. So yin is a, the way I mean, the, sorry, the way I think of yang that really works for me is that it is a penetrative energy. It is cutting through something. There is mm -hmm. a vector. And I think of missiles, guns. Um, these are yang instruments of sort of projectiles. Right. So and then there's the yin is the receiver, the cup, the bowl. Um, and so if if I am in a yin frame of mind, I'm taking in information, I'm integrating information. <clears throat> I'm not just immediately acting, you know, I think mm -hmm. the, um, and that's why I'm talking about like, you know, some of these like hyper achievers, they're addicted to achievement. They're addicted yes. to, to work. You know, there are process addictions. We can get addicted to drugs or alcohol or I'm sorry, alcohol and other drugs. I like to say, um, but you can also get addicted to people and you can get addicted to processes. Um, you can become addicted to, you know, watching Great British Baking Show or listening to podcasts <laughs> or, uh, you know, being a CEO. But there is still a level of like compulsion. And, you know, this isn't good for you, but you're still doing it. Um, and I think of that as very sort of yang behavior. And there's a certain rigidity and, and fixed quality to it. And yin is much more uh, flexible, you know, the opposite of cognitive rigidity and open. Um, and again, I would say that parasympathetic and 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 being open as opposed to being sort of closed minded and fixed, which is more sympathetic and fight or flight. And 
You said something that was really important in there. You said that you, as a woman who would stereotypically be more yin, but they have a lot of yang energy. And likewise, men can have lots of yin energy. So it isn't yes. masculine and feminine. Right. And I've found that training my ability to switch between those states is really important. Yeah. Because I, I don't know how to put together all the stuff I put together to do my writing and my research and my discovery, the, the creative side of what I do, unless I'm in a yin state. But then right. if you want to be a CEO and get shit done, you kind of have to put on the yang hat. Right. Um, is there a psychedelic or a, a therapeutic technique that helps people sense when they're in one versus the other and learn how to how to be in the state they do? Yeah. Well, I, I, I teach my patients to just pay attention, pay attention to your breathing, first of all, because when you're in fight or flight, you are either not breathing or you're breathing in a pretty shallow way. When you're relaxed, you're taking these long, slow, deep breaths in and out through your nose. And breathing through your nose can help to put you in yin and in parasympathetic. And huffing and puffing, panting is more of a sympathetic thing that would put you in yang. So um, breathing exercises are the easiest way. I mean, I'm one of the things that really helped me sort of figure it out was that I, I, I have friends with babies and I would hold their babies. And I would, you know, the thing about if a baby's crying, if you calm yourself before you pick up a crying baby and you're calm, it calms them, right? So I learned how, and I sort of pretend like, you know, oxytocin, oxytocin, it's just kind of like running down from my brain through my body. And I just, I relax myself and I'm breathing through my nose and, and then I hold the baby and I get more oxytocin. And so I've sort of figured out how to flick my brain into baby mode, you know, wow. and really calm myself. Um, but the first thing is just understanding it. Or, you know, if you're uh, talking to your wife, let's say, and you know, you're talking and you're talking, but you're talking about the same thing and you start to get a little louder. You're not hearing me a little louder, a little clenchier. Your voice is going up. You know, your voice gets a little tighter. Your hands get a little tighter. Your heart starts to race a little bit. You're getting into sympathetic mode, right? Your social skills are going to suck. You're not going to be able to take in information. You got to get out of sympathetic and into parasympathetic if you really want to have a conversation and a collaboration with your partner. But it's funny because if you're if you're having a conversation with somebody and they say to you, you know, breathe, relax, like, does anyone ever relax or in that situation? Like, no. like, what's more aggravating than being told that you're not relaxed and you need to relax? So that back that backfires. But yes, um, just breathing through in and out through your nose. Like, you know, some people say in through your nose, out through your mouth. I am not one of those people in and out through your nose. And if you're really freaking out, I tell people that if you just block the right nostril and breathe in and out through the left nostril, it really can calm you down. It can, it can soothe you and it can help to get you over in parasympathetic, but you, you know, everybody should just start paying attention because you can tell when you're in sympathetic and when you're in parasympathetic, you can feel it. Um, yeah. And if you can't feel it, you need to pay attention. You know, the first chapter, good chemistry, I just tell people like, get in your body, become embodied, feel your body, you know, and you have to put the phone down or, or close a laptop to really get embodied and be in your body. And so and maybe you have to really get off your screens to feel whether you're in sympathetic or parasympathetic. But what I, you know, if I start reading too much of the news, I can feel myself shifting, you know? Good morning. Yeah. I'm calm. I'm reading this and that. And then as I'm getting more news, you know, I, I feel like my heart rate's going up and my breathing is getting a little uneven and my hands are getting a little sweaty and clenchy and I'm starting to get angry. And like this, this is bad for my body. The news is bad for me physically. Yeah. Um, I have to stop. It, it's so cool that you talked about that. I have a new book called Fast This Way that's coming out. And by the way, guys, you're listening to this. If you haven't pre-ordered it, would you do me the favor of pre-ordering it? And while you're at it, if you order good chemistry at the same time, they'll show up together on Amazon and everyone can get them both because mm -hmm. it's actually a really good read. You should read good chemistry. But in, in Fast This Way, uh, I talk about fasting from the news. Yes, <laughs> and I totally It's a type agree. of fasting. It, yes. It's not just about I didn't eat anything yes. uh, because you'll be tweaking if you do too much of that. So go a day without it and see how your life changes. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Fast from the news, <clears throat> fast from your devices, if you can. You know, I've got a really good friend who's not Jewish, but he uh, observes the Sabbath and that he shuts down his phone and his laptop for 24 hours, Friday night to Saturday night. No big deal. But it's Saturday has become this like spacious, sacred, long day with so many hours in it because he's not spending any time on Twitter or Facebook or email. And, um, you know, and that's just once once a week. Let's talk about macro dosing versus micro dosing. 
because so many people are reaching out to me asking about yeah. that and they're fundamentally different. So I want you to explain the differences, but especially focus on the differences around the therapeutic benefits. So a microdose is basically one-tenth of a macrodose. So let's say if you had dried mushrooms, you would maybe take three grams or four grams, or if you're feeling quite heroic, you might take five grams. Um, but a macrodose is basically a tenth, say, of the of the three grams. So it would be like 300 milligrams or even 200 milligrams. Um, the point is with microdosing is that it's supposed to be sub-threshold, sub-perceptual. So you're not supposed to feel like you're tripping. Um, you know, the the joke that I make is if is if the words on the page are swimming, then it's not a microdose, right? The, <laughs> okay. the, the, the words have to not move. So um, so you figure out what your dose is, you know, whether it's 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams uh, where you don't feel it, but it is in your system. So and then for LSD, like a sort of classic LSD dose would be maybe 100 micrograms. So uh, a microdose would be 10. So a microdose is about a tenth of a macrodose. And, and there's a couple different protocols. You can either take it every three or four days, or there are some protocols where you take it five days on, two days off. Um, the reason why you wait and take it every three or four days is so that you don't become tolerant to it. So people are microdosing for all kinds of reasons. I think uh, initially, I think some people were looking at it for focus and productivity, um, and it seemed like it was very helpful for that. And then other people were looking at it for creativity, where you can get a little bit looser and make sort of looser associations, which is associated with enhanced creativity. Uh, again, this idea of rigidity versus fluidity and opening things up a little bit. So uh, it, it could be used for uh, depression or anxiety or um, ADD. I mean, everybody seems to have a reason why microdosing is helpful. And then the other issue is that it's also these are anti-inflammatory, right? Um, psilocybin, LSD, I mean, DOI, we know for sure is, is like sort of the most anti-inflammatory psychedelic, psychedelic. Just, it just, if you look at all the psychedelics and how anti-inflammatory they are, uh, for whatever reason, it seems like DOI is at the top of the list what for is how anti-inflammatory it is. Um, it's just one of many, uh, psychedelics that hits the 5-HT2A receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor. It's not, it's not commonly used. Okay, um, I'm it. just, it's just, if you look, if, if, uh, I mean, the person who's done the most work in, in this issue of psychedelics being anti-inflammatory is Chuck Nichols, Charles Nichols, who is Dave Nichols' son. And Dave Nichols wrote a chapter in, in my, in my first, uh, the first book that I edited, which is the ecstasy book. Dave Nichols wrote the, 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 the chapter on the chemistry of MDMA. So Dave's son is sort of carrying on his father's footsteps. I mean, Charles has done uh, a lot of research on psychedelics um, as his father, Dave, has. So um, he is the person who sort of, I think, made popular this idea that there are certain psychedelics that are anti-inflammatory. But I feel like I've gone off on a tangent. Microdosing. Okay, so um, there's a man named James Fadiman, Jim Fadiman, and the Fadiman protocol is that you microdose every three or four days. And so some people are using microdosing, whether it's LSD or psilocybin or dried mushrooms, but they're using microdosing um, as a way to get off their antidepressants or as a way to treat depression um, or, as I said, ADHD or PTSD. Uh, it seems to be sort of good for what ails you. If you don't have a history of bipolar disorder, if you don't have a history of schizophrenia, if you don't have family, close family with those disorders, um, and by the way, this is assuming you're not adopted, because if you're adopted, then you need to know what your biological history is. Right. Um, but this is not legal. There's very little research. It's mostly anecdotal, but it's a lot of anecdotal data. Okay. Well, that's oftentimes where breakthroughs and new discoveries happen, because it's kind of weird. If you only do stuff that's been studied, you wouldn't study anything new. You have to start somewhere, right? And so usually what happens is once there's enough anecdotal data, then somebody says, hey, we should really do a placebo-controlled study. And so that is what's happening now, is that people are starting to organize uh, placebo-controlled microdosing studies to figure out what it's doing. Um, so these are really, these are early days. You know, again, this is potentially a disruptive technology, a, a disruptive way um, of treating Things. You know, in psychiatry, we have the daily dose. You know, you take your antidepressant or your anti-anxiety medicine every single day. 
for years. Um, and the truth is that these medicines weren't really designed to be used for decades and they weren't really studied to be taken for decades, but that's what's happened. Um, you know, ever since I mean, Prozac was developed, I think in, in 88, you know, and since like the mid to late eighties, people have been taking more and more antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, sleeping pills. Um, the numbers are just going up and up. 9-11, uh, was a huge increase. It seemed like a lot of people gave themselves permission to start taking things like Xanax or Ambien or Clonopin at that time. Um, so, you know, we had the mid nineties where they all of a sudden started to do direct to consumer advertising. So that was a big jump. And then nine 11 was another huge jump. And then I would say now that COVID is going to be another big jump. Um, you know, in March or April, I had pharmacies saying that they were running out of Xanax or Clonopin. They couldn't get my patients you know, oh, we don't have any one milligram. Can you can you prescribe two milligram and break them in half? Like, you know, they were the Xanax was flying off the shelves. Um, wow. So I think that we are definitely seeing an uptick in how people are soothing themselves. But on the flip side is that we are seeing an uptick in people trying different ways of treating their unrest and whether they're using macrodoses or microdoses or they're, you know, maybe finding an ayahuasca circle to go to. Um, there are all kinds of options more than ever before. And eventually those options are going to work their way into mainstream psychiatry, mainstream medicine, because uh, these, these work better, you know, they're more effective and they're more efficient. I love that. And I have one final question for you, Julie. And you just wrote good chemistry, which means you immersed yourself in thousands of hours of writing, plus you took all of your clinical background and experience and you condensed it as much as you could. So your brain's in a unique state to answer the question. And right now, given what we all know is going on in the world, if you could recommend only three things for a person to gain more sense of connection in their life right now, what are the top three? Um, anything that enhances oxytocin, hugging, eye contact, um, orgasm is lovely. So any, anything that would increase oxytocin, I'd say is number one. And I'm actually going to put cannabis as number two, because I am a big proponent. I know, I know I'm going out on a limb here. Um, for me, cannabis really helps me get in my body and become embodied and become very aware of sort of where I am in physical space and my kinesthetic awareness and my posture and things like that. But it also really helps me feel connected to nature. When I go outside um, if I have had cannabis, I feel uh, just sort of more in tune with nature and more uh, a part of nature. Um, and I don't know what I would put as number three. I mean, you know, I, uh, I because MDM, you know, the thing about cannabis is like you pretty much know what pot looks like. There's not a lot of rampant drug substitution. There's, you know, uh, there's not a lot of counterfeit cannabis going around. And a lot of people live in places, a lot of people <laughs> live in places where they can go to a dispensary um, and and get cannabis. So I you can't really say that for MDMA. Like I think MDMA really enhances connection, but I can't tell people you know go out there and get MDMA because uh, Lord knows what they're going to get and it could really be dangerous. So I that's why I'm having a little bit of trouble of what to put at number three. But I guess I would say to put yourself in the parasympathetic mode because you're not open to connection if you're in fight or flight you are closed down in fight or flight. You know, the example I like to give is like, if you, if you have a fire in your kitchen, you are totally focused on like, where's the fire extinguisher? Get out of here. I got to put this fire away. You're not, you don't pick up the phone to chat with somebody. You're not nice to your neighbor. You're not sweet with your kid. You, you know, you've got something to do and you're very closed in on that one thing. And your social skills, I would say when you're in fight or flight are shit. So you want you want to be in parasympathetic so that you are open to connection or it's not going to happen. Beautiful. Well, uh, Julie, thank you for being back on Bulletproof Radio. I think it might have been too long. We always have these amazing conversations. I feel like we could go for another hour and talk about cool stuff. But we're at the end of the show. I would like to, to just first say thank you. And then I want to talk to our listeners about what they need to do next. So thanks. Thank you for having me. What I want you guys to do next is seriously listen to that last maybe one minute of the show about the top three things you can do to be more connected because now it matters. It is a performance-enhancing substance. I'm talking about connection. And you ought to read Good Chemistry because you're interested in enough in this to subscribe to Bulletproof Radio. You spend a couple hours a week with me usually. 
And if you were to take some of your time and you were to listen to uh, the audio version or just read the book, you're going to figure out some things that are happening in your life right now post-pandemic, even though the book was written pre-pandemic because it's all about connection. And I am seeing everywhere that the, the sense of connection that people are starting to lose because you can't make full face contact with people because you're alone, it's starting to create a societal burden. And I think there's wisdom in, in good chemistry that you really want to take advantage of. So check out uh, the new book. It's worth your time. Otherwise, well, we wouldn't be talking about it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you read good chemistry, you have a moral obligation to leave a review when you're done reading it. And if you don't leave a review for an author after you've enjoyed their book, it's because you're a bad person. <laughs> See you next time. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.